Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Brad Berman, your host for today's presentation. Eric Siegel is the chair of the club's Personal Growth Forum. This presentation is free as part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual program series on the impact of COVID-19. It is generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. We are grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times by making a donation on our website at commonwealthclub.org. And on with this evening's presentation. Managing Anxiety in the Time of COVID-19. It's a stressful time. We're understandably anxious as we face a dangerous and unprecedented situation and uncertain future. Ordinarily, we would try and cope as best we would commonly do, such as reaching out to friends and families for a supportive hug or gather together to talk things through. These are the ways we usually manage stressful situations. Yet during this time of coronavirus, we have to be physically distancing from each other. We want to make sure that our loved ones are safe, yet our presence can endanger them. We need to handle complex, unprecedented situations quickly and competently, yet our impulse may be towards panic, anxiety, and therefore avoidance. It therefore gives me great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Dr. Michael Tompkins, co-director at the San Francisco Bay Area Center for Cognitive Therapy an assistant clinical professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who specializes in the treating of anxiety disorders. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Brad. Nice to see you again. It's a pleasure as always. We are fortunate that Dr. Tompkins is going to spend with us an hour sharing a few strategies that may help us to manage our anxiety more effectively. And he will also address several questions relative to this time uh, frame in our lives and the challenges we face. Hopefully, we'll be able to address several of your own unique questions and concerns as well. And with that, Michael, please. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Brad, and I'm hoping that we can actually, you know, have uh, an informal question and answer kind of uh, thing. Um, and uh, hopefully, I'll have some answers that will be helpful to um, our listening audience. Great. Thank you. So what we decided that we would do would be to try and come up with a question and answer process here rather than just a straightforward presentation. Uh, it would be more dynamic and hopefully uh, keep you actively engaged in this conversation. So, Michael, if I may ask, what is anxiety, fear, panic and stress? Well, you know, it depends upon what you read, but um for our purposes, I think we can define stress as the physiologic response to a challenge. Uh, we might define anxiety or worry as anxious apprehension. Um, and then fear is this uh, automatic, um, uh, protective fight or flight response that we have to uh, an imminent threat or danger. The distinction, the important distinction between worry and uh, worry and and fear is that worry has a lot more thinking in it than fear. Fear is very automatic. Um, worry, a lot of cognition in it. And so, when, for example, if I'm walking down the street 
the sidewalk and I hear a sound coming from the alley, I will make an evaluation. I'll have a thought. I'll have a cognition. And that thought will be perhaps threat or danger. Once that happens, I become anxious and I have this physiologic response to that evaluation. And my body is kind of preparing itself in the, uh, to, to moderate whatever exposure I might have to this perceived threat or danger. But the operative word in worry is perhaps threat or danger. Mm-hmm. So in worry, what we have is uncertainty. Right? And so what we have right now is a lot of uncertainty about a, a many, many things. And so it is natural for us all to be worrying. Um, and one of the questions that we have, we have on the table is like, when, when is this worry productive worry and when is it unproductive worry? Can you expand a little bit further? It's interesting you, you phrase it that way. What does productive worry mean? Productive worry, worry really is uh, about orienting us to solve a problem. And the problem when it comes to worry is generally a perceived threat or danger. So if you're, if you're uh, giving a big presentation uh, tomorrow, you might start to worry. You might start to worry about your performance and you might perceive that as a threat uh, of not performing well. So then you will develop a plan and it will be a preparation plan. You'll study, you might kind of rehearse it a couple of times with colleagues. Um, You might make a PowerPoint. Um, You'll do a number of different things. Those that's productive worry. Once you've done that, worry has done its job and now you can move on from worry Unproductive worry basically is worry when there's actually no real solution, meaning you have very little influence over the outcome. I have, if I'm preparing for a presentation, I have some influence over the outcome, meaning how well I do. But if I'm worried about the economy, I have very little influence over the economy. And so what plan can I develop to solve the threat of, of the economy? And the answer is not much. So, so what, what happens for people who actually uh, worry excessively is that they often engage in unproductive worry, not productive worry. And what would be examples then of unproductive worry? Just simple things that you've seen. Unproductive worry would be, uh, for example, you lay down in bed at night and you start to worry about, you know, uh, how the company is doing. First off, you have very little influence over how the company is doing. You have a bit of influence. You have your participation in the company. But if the company includes 1,500 people and you're just one of them, while you have some influence, you don't have control. And so not only that, at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, even if there was something for you to do, you can't do it now. You can't do it then because it's 11 o'clock at night. Right? And so unproductive worry really is a worry, worrying about some, about trying to control outcomes that you have very little influence over. Um, and one of the things that, that the, really the only thing that really distinguishes between normal worry versus abnormal worry, if I could use that term, is that uh, people who worry normally or uh, productively worry about the same things that people worry about 
who worry excessively. They worry about their health. They worry about money. They worry about uh, world events. They worry about the same kinds of things. But the difference between someone who has uh, perhaps a problem with worry is that when they uh, have, when they're ready to stop worrying, they can't. And so it's the controllability or perceived lack of controllability of worry, which makes really distinguishes it between what's quote normal worry and what's not normal worry. So there may be many of us in the listening audience who tend to worry more than not about particular things. So are you suggesting that it may be fallacy to think that if we just keep thinking things through over and over again, we're going to come up with the solution or the answer? Right. That is a fallacy. It's a fallacy if you if your if your influence is very limited on an outcome. It doesn't really matter how much you worry about something or how much you plan it out. There are limits to your influence. And a lot of times what, what we end up doing uh, is worrying excessively about outcomes that we there's not really much we can do about. And sometimes what happens for people is the trap is that they believe worry is working on the problem. Actually, mm-hmm. not necessarily, particularly mm-hmm. if the pro- the problem is one that you have very little influence over. If you have very little influence over a problem, then worrying about it probably isn't going to solve the problem. Whatever you could do would solve the problem, but you can't do much because you don't have much influence over the outcome. So if I hear you correctly, and by the way, questions are pouring in for Dr. Michael Tompkins already, a noted national and international expert on anxiety disorders and what to do about them in children, adolescents, and adults, and also the author of 12 books on the very subject. So there's a great question, and and for the sake of the listening audience, I'm not going to mention anyone's name, but they are coming in this way, is how can we stop unproductive worry? Well, there are, you know, in uh, a number of strategies you can use uh, to give you to, to learn that you do have some control of your worry process. One of the most straightforward and, and often recommended is kind of a, uh, a scheduling worry time. Mm-hmm. So what happens if you worry excessively is that you tend, your experiences, you're tending to worry all the time. And, and what happens when we worry a lot is worry contributes to physiologic arousal. So we get, this is why someone with generalized anxiety disorder also has all of these somatic complaints, GI distress, headaches, uh, muscle tension, because they're worrying a lot and all that worry feeds into their physiology. And so they're kind of like tensed up and on, on edge. And so one of the ways to do it is to try to contain the worry. And one way you can do that is you can basically set several points across the day, several periods, five minutes, 10 minutes. And during those five or 10 minutes, you give yourself full permission to worry about whatever you want. (laughs) All right. You just sit there and you fully worry and you engage in all your worries. But between those five or 10 minute windows, you, when you start to worry, you basically say to yourself, this is not the time I'm going to worry. I have I'm going to worry at two o'clock and I have that time set aside for worry. So when I'm working with people, I kind of like we just schedule the worry time in their schedule into their calendar and then they worry. But the goal is to kind of like turf the worry to one of those worry times. What that does is it does 
indirectly kind of contain the amount of worry. And if you contain the worry, then you're not contributing excessively to the arousal because the arousal begets more worry. Um, and then what you can have, you can have a number of these periods over the course of the day. And as you gain more control over your worry process, you can cut out uh, a worry period until you have very few. Hmm. Fascinating. So if I, hearing you, um, can you just, would you distinguish for a moment the difference between, for or the, the, our audience here is the difference between arousal and fight or flight? Or are you really saying they're the same thing? No, a f- fight or flight really is, uh, uh, that's like with a panic attack or a fear response. That's a sudden rush of fear or terror. Mm-hmm. Sudden rush of fear or terror. I think all of us know uh, the difference between the experience of anxiety or worry and terror, right? So if I go back to the analogy, if I'm walking down the sidewalk and I hear a sound, I'm not really certain what that sound is it may be danger it may not be danger that's why i have the thought perhaps that's danger however if i turn the corner and go down the alley and someone points a gun at me it's no longer perhaps i'm in danger i am in danger and what my my uh, biology will do will protect me immediately and automatically and i won't even think about it it will just happen and three things will happen three actions will happen either i'll escape if i can or I'll freeze if I can't, or if there's a movement, I'll shield, right? Those three things will happen automatically. And we will make that decision in an instant. And uh, our ability to make that decision in an instant is what has contributed to our survival. Um, but fear is has very little thinking in it because Mother Nature in her wisdom uh, didn't trust us enough to say you'll be able to make the decision about whether you're in danger or not, and you can think about that and find. No, Mother Nature and her wisdom constituted us to act before we think when it comes to fear. Thank you. So before we get to another excellent question about um, unfocused anxiety, I want to first ask you, that's what it appears like for adults, but how would this sort of arousal versus panic response appear in children or in teens? Well, in children um, or or even in teens, what you're going to notice um, is probably a lot of somatic complaints. Um, Pediatricians such as yourself, Brad, are very accustomed to evaluating kids who have tummy aches or headaches or um, various uh, somatic difficulties, which is due to their arousal, and that arousal is due to their worry about X, Y, or Z. Also, sleep is probably the most sensitive index of uh, emotional well-being we have, and kids who aren't sleeping well may be worrying excessively. And then also this idea of like when kids start to regress to old behaviors that they did uh, when they were young but have outgrown, this could signal that the kid is anxious. Great. I'd like to come back to that. I'm writing a note for myself about that because otherwise we'll keep going down a particular path. Um, and I'm guessing that if during this time of shelter and home stay, children are not sleeping well, it might be that parents then are also not likely to sleep as well. Oh, I think that's, that's fair to say uh, that if, 
children aren't sleeping well, that's going to be a major disruption in your sleep. And if you, if a, as a parent, you've had any difficulty in sleep onset and maintenance, this is the kind of scenario that's going to make it worse. Mm. And I know we'd like to speak a little bit more about sleep um, in a moment. There are two questions that I would like to merge together, and they're both excellent, which is one about um, feeling waves of teariness, uh, something that this individual doesn't normally experience on a daily basis prior to COVID-19 and, and described as unfocused anxiety. And our other listener wonders about the sort of flight response when anxiety suddenly arises. And I wonder if you can discuss both of those a little bit and, and ways in which we could understand it and ways in which we might be able to address it. Well, the, the tearfulness uh, uh, and uh, emotion that comes up can come up when you're feeling really anxious or if you are in a prolonged state of uh, stress or anxiety for an extended period of time. And also what can happen is that you're, you know, if you're in a prolonged state of worry and anxiety, it tends, it can push your mood down. And so you can actually begin to feel a bit down or even depressed, particularly if you, uh, if you have struggled with, you know, uh, mood in the past. And part of the reason, or one of the ways to think about this from a psychological point of view, not a biological point of view, is that I, I, with, with my patients, I, t I use this analogy. It's like if, it, because anxiety is, at the heart of anxiety is uncertainty. And so if I was on death row, but I didn't really know when the day was going to come in which the warden was going to come and knock at my cell and say, today is the day, please come with me. Every day I sit with not being certain about whether this is my last day or not. I get up in the morning, worrying about that, thinking about that. I go to bed, thinking about that. This is a sense of dread. And I think a lot of us are experiencing some dread in terms of possible outcomes. And this starts to weigh on us and push our mood down. And so, you know, if I'm sitting on death row day after day, not really certain whether this is the last day or not, I'm going to start to feel hopeless and powerless. And that's when that's going to influence my mood because anxiety and depression, um, anxiety, there's still a perceived sense of control, but in depression, particularly the hopelessness, we lose that sense that we can control the outcome. When we're anxious, we're working to control the outcome. So we, we do believe we can do that. When we flip into believing that we have no control over the outcome, there, the situation becomes hopeless, and then our mood can slip. And yet, earlier, if I heard you correctly, the suggestion is for people to let go of the belief that they can control something, you know, like at night when they're worried. So what do people do if, on one hand, they're worried about circumstances that they're trying to control? On the other hand, they let up on the notion that they can control it. Would that not just flood them? No. The, the answer to that, which is the recommendation, a recommendation I make to many people in a situation like this, is move into controlling or influencing what you have high influence over. So... 
exercise, getting out in sunlight with social distancing, uh, staying to your routines, a number of things we, we actually do and staying, you know, doing your work, getting up and doing your work. Those things we have high influence over. Do those things while you try to let go of the things that you have low influence over, right? And you're practicing refocusing on the things you have high influence over, which will give you a sense of, quote, control, although I don't really believe in that word. I don't believe that we control things. I believe we have influence over things. And some things we have high influence over and sometimes things we have low influence over and then there's a full, full range. But the idea of control is a myth. It's a comforting myth, but it's a myth nonetheless. Well, that, that may be an invitation for another topic in personal growth, Eric, which is about the, the, the notion control, real or fantasy. Yeah, exactly. So bringing yeah. it back then to, to the people who have asked about the unfocused anxiety, or I guess what people used to call free-floating anxiety, and then the tendency towards that panic or fight or flight. What more can they do in that moment? One of the things that happens, I see a lot for people, and this has nothing to do with how smart a person is. What it has to do is their awareness. So a lot of times what, what unfocused anxiety is, is the person is simply not aware of the cognition. They're, they're simply not aware of the what ifs, right? And because perhaps they've never really needed to pay attention to the what ifs, you know, sometimes people that's, that's difficult for them uh, to pay attention to what they're thinking. They're much more aware of what they're feeling or in their body or what they're doing. And so typically there isn't, there isn't any such thing as unfocused anxiety. It's really about the person's not really quite aware of the, of the, what ifs that they're having that are contributing to this experience. And so the first step in cognitive therapy, of course, as you might guess, is, yes. to, is to increase their awareness of the cognitions or the thoughts that are influencing their feelings. Could you give us an example? And, and let's say relevant to COVID-19 or, you know, the interventions, the, the politics of it, whatever it may be. An example of what? Of how to bring awareness to the what ifs. One of the one of the uh, one of the easiest things to do is to journal, right? And the act of journaling uh, and uh, is basically uh, identifying the situation in which you started feeling anxious, and then in between the situation and the feeling of anxiety, ask yourself the question: What was going through my mind just before I started feeling that? Right? And sometimes you can do hypotheses. With worry, I, what helps people is the term what if, because worry is uncertainty. And so look for the what ifs. So what if I get COVID? What if, oh, what if I lose my job? What if I'm furloughed? What if, what if that food is contaminated? What if this? What if that? So, but journaling is probably the most straightforward way to do that. Okay, there may be more questions that listeners ask about that. I wonder, before we move on a little bit further, if there are some strategies you might suggest in the moment when somebody is really escalating in their anxiety and or fight or flight panic, 
and mm -hmm. moving, you know, towards a panic attack, things like that, or it's just getting the better of them in the moment. Just so mm -hmm. you know, some of the listeners talked about um, crying, anger, mm -hmm. uh, just blanking out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things, there are a number of things, what, what's, what happens when we, when we get in a situation like this, myself included, is that we tend to dwell on the worst possible outcomes. Right. We tend to catastrophize. And it's not that we catastrophizing is necessarily a bad thing, but we dwell on it. We dwell on the worst possible outcome. And, you know, if you look at the statistics on COVID, the likelihood of actually coming down with COVID is probably pretty low, you know, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels high. Right. But. What happens is we dwell on the worst case scenario. So one of the one of the things I do is I basically spend some time thinking about the best possible outcome because my anxious mind's not spending a lot of time there, right? So I spend uh, I try to redirect my attention to the best possible outcome. The other thing I try to redirect my attention to is successfully coping. One of the things the part of catastrophizing is underestimating one's ability to cope, our ability to cope. When we underestimate our ability to cope, we can make something small into something huge, right? And so uh, if I'm thinking about something that's really scary, I try to imagine coping with that well or coping with that adequately rather than, you know, falling into the trap of, of dwelling on not coping with it. Um, and so that's a simple thing to do. Uh, spend time with the best outcome, as I said. Um, think about sphere of control. You know, draw yourself a circle and put in the circle the things that you have high influence over. And on the outside of the circle, list all the things that you have low influence over. And then draw your attention back to the inside of the sphere and, and really focus your attention and energies there. What could, I could do that and I could do that and I could do that. Particularly if it if it's around coping, there's a lot of things we can do to cope. You know, uh, there aren't a lot of things that we can do to change the situation in the world. Uh, would you say that ice cream would be one of the strategies for ice cream? You know, absolutely. I just bought a nice, you know, Ben and Jerry's quart just the other day. Absolutely. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California for this evening's presentation about uh, anxiety in the time of COVID-19. We are uh, greatly um, uh, uh, advantaged to have with us Michael Tompkins, a psychologist and expert in cognitive behavioral therapy throughout the Bay Area. So one of the things that you and I have uh, shared thoughts about previously is about the media diet that people have been on. And I wonder if you could spend a few minutes talking about that from the viewpoint of both how it sort of may foster anxiousness and even moving towards more panic. Yes. I have put myself on a media diet. I was noticing that the more that I was drawn to media, I was drawn to news. And what draws me to news is, is the anxiety that comes with uncertainty. Oh, maybe, maybe I'm going to read something that's going to reassure me. You know, maybe I'm going to read something that's going to make me feel better in this moment. And what I realized, actually, and it didn't take too much time to realize this, is that actually, almost always, I read something that actually made me more anxious, not less anxious. Right? 
And so I have decided that I'm not going to spend any more than 30 minutes reading anything on the news, no more than 30. And also when it comes to COVID, I have limited myself to only a couple of websites, uh, the CDC, but also the jo John Hopkins website is just really amazing. All right. I don't, if I want information about COVID, those are the places I go, but I don't read the news about uh, politics, which has, uh, I have all kinds of feelings about what's going on politically. So I don't, I don't read that. And so, uh, and what happens for us is that when we go on and we read those things, we actually want to read more. And so it gets harder to not read, right? But my recommendation would be put yourself on a diet and in three or four days, you're going to notice that you, you don't have as strong urges to read the news. And not only that, the reading the news offers you very little in terms of what influence or what you could do to help you cope, right? Uh, websites around coping and things like that, yes. But the news, the headlines, no. Sure. Would you say that spending more time looking at media that we enjoy or, or you know, mm -hmm. like, for yeah. example, those cat and dog videos, things like that? That's right. A cat and dog videos are always great, right? So another thing you can do is really uh, try to um, – one of the things – another simple thing that I recommend people do, which I do um, and have been doing it for years, is I keep a gratitude journal. So in a situation like this, we kind of lose sight of how fortunate I am. I'll speak for myself, how fortunate I am. Um, my worst day is better than millions of people's best day. And I keep a gratitude journal. And the way to keep a gratitude journal is you don't do too much of it, but you basically reflect in your journal on a, a, a couple of things that uh, you're grateful for. And I usually have people kind of go from their inside to their outside, um, which is like, you know, I'm grateful that I can hear you. I'm grateful that I can, on my walk home, I can enjoy the gardens. They're in wonderful view, uh, uh, bloom now. I'm also grateful for my family. And one of the things that I really include in my gr gratitude journal a lot is my family. And I'm very grateful everyone's healthy and safe. I'm grateful I have a supportive spouse. I'm grateful I have great kids. Um, so, uh, and so you just, you know, list out some things, but don't list them, kind of spend some time kind of describing what that experience is like for you, why it's important. Spend some time with gratitude, you know, rather than spend, spending time with, you know, uh, worry. Hmm. Thank you for that. And, uh, the listeners, um, should know that at the end of this presentation, Dr. Tompkins will share a slide of information with us about some websites that you can go to that address, uh, themes of anxiousness and anxiety that may lead you to even further, uh, methods of support and guidance. So before we move on to something else, and then definitely want to get to children, um, if I hear you correctly, then you're talking about trying to organize our worries, organize our fears, and begin to separate out what's something actionable and what's not actionable, uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and begin to let go of much more. That's right. Another thing um, that helps to organize that is to, is to focus on probability, not possibility, because anything is possible. You know? 
So looking at, you know, the CDC and, uh, and trying to gather data about probability, if, if I organized my life relative to all the possible bad things that could happen to me on any particular day, I would never leave my bed, which would diminish my effectiveness in life. The reason we're effective as organisms is that we organize our actions relative to probability, not possibility. And this is really important when you start thinking about how you spend your day. Um, Years ago, I love this story. Years ago, I was working, uh, my wife and I were doing this big remodel and we were adding a second floor. We were working with this wonderful architect. And the architect said, you know, we're going to have to bring a structural engineer in here because we're adding this and we need to actually, you know, get some expertise in terms of how, you know, how to support the structure so that it's safe. But the architect said, but let me just tell you a little bit about structural engineers. And if there are any structural engineers in the audience tonight, I apologize. (laughs) Um, But the architect said, look, this is the way structural engineers work. The safest structure is a box without windows and doors. That's the safest place to live. But the architect said, but do you really want to live in a box with no windows and doors? Do you really want to live in a box that without sunshine? Do you really want to live in a box that you can't leave? Because every time you add a window and a door, To your structure, you add a little bit more risk. And I listened to this architect as a psychologist, and I said, she's brilliant. Because that is a metaphor for how to live a life fully. You know, that trying to live a life without windows and doors may lower your risk, but is it really the way you want to live your life? I don't want to live my life that way. So I, I organize my actions relative to likelihood, to probability. But I recognize that life always has risks. And that is, you know, what makes life, at the end of the day, actually worth living. You know, um, that it fulfills us when we take on a risk or a challenge and we go for it. Um, so... I really try to organize my actions relative to this metaphor. That's a wonderful story. Thank you for that, Michael. So before we move to children, one last question. And then I promise some of the listeners and Michael that at the end, we'll save a little bit of time to talk about sleep. And so the specific question, which I thank the listener for is, What might you suggest related to people whose job it is to either read the news or be involved in an industry that has to pay attention to that? And more specifically, if they are involved with, I'll say loosely, the COVID-19 business, Mm -hmm. healthcare providers, Uh and so on, first responders. So it sounds like the question is, you know, I can't, my job is to read the news. Yes. Or to be involved with COVID-19 every waking moment you're involved. Maybe you're you're a physician planning response or something like that. So you're involved in 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 this. I think that um, probably the best thing that one could do in a situation like that would be to make sure that you have a really good self-care plan and you're following it. Right? Um, that uh, at the end of the day. 
you're, you know, you're spending a lot of time with all the bad things that could happen. And there are a lot of bad things that could happen. Um, and I would say we're all kind of like experiencing all the bad things that could happen. But to actually have that in your face all day, I think would be really hard. And so I would be, you know, if it were me, I would be making sure that I have uh, that the time I'm away from that, um, I am really taking care of myself. I'm exercising. I'm getting out. I'm spending time with my loved ones to the degree I can. Um, I'm uh, if I start to worry, I'm going to use some of these strategies we've talked about today. I'm going to avoid, you know, uh, 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 drinking too much alcohol, too much caffeine. I'm going to really try to take care of myself. And that that, may, that actually sounds easier said than done many times, because a lot of times when we're really worried and anxious, uh, we, we get so swept up in the experience that we actually lose sight of the fact that there are some things that we could do to help ourselves cope in this moment. Um, but make it a priority. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very unique and difficult situation for sure. So let's talk for a moment about children and teens because there are many parents asking questions in our listening audience tonight. So you mentioned that children and adolescents do show anxiety and I know you just mentioned a few. Um, what are some of the ways that you might suggest that parents can help specifically around the whole relationship of remaining at home right now, not being able to go out, see their friends, go to school, Excellent. observing media and so on. What are some of the strategies and techniques that parents can use to support their children? Yes, I, want, I, I, I am so sympathetic for parents right now who are sheltered in place with little ones. I, my, my kids, I have two daughters, they're young adults now. I, I have neighbors who have little ones um, so we have teddy bears on our windows like all our neighbors. Um, I just can't imagine that, actually. It's hard enough. And then, they're, you know, the parents are trying to kind of like home, basically homeschool their kids. I mean, it's just like, it's just, it's it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Um, but what can you do with your kids if your kid is over-anxious? There are a couple of things you can do. You can provide information that's appropriate to their developmental age. And so uh, your, when your kids come to you with questions, try to answer those questions in a straightforward, honest way, but don't provide too more information than they're asking, right? Another thing you can do is you can teach kids little, you can teach them uh, what are called somatic arousal, you know, strategies. So you can teach them belly breathing, um, make it a game in my office. Uh, I have a little piece of blue felt. I have a rubber ducky. When a little kid comes in, I put it on their tummy and I ask them to give the, the, the ducky a gentle ride uh, with on their belly. Right? So, you know, teach them to breathe belly. Teach them to uh, relax and tense, do progressive muscle relaxation. With little ones, you're going to just do a few. You're not going to do 12 groups. But, you know, tighten this part, tighten this part, tighten the gut and tighten the legs. Um, the other thing you, is that if your kid is really worrying a lot, you can uh, give the, uh, have the kid give the worry a, a name. So mm -hmm. like the worry bully or some bad actor, so that now you can talk about the worry from with some distance from it. So it's not about the kid. It's really about this thing. And then you can teach the kid to kind of like 
boss facts of worry, you know? I often uh, play a game of like red light, green light, you know, in my office where I'm the big bad worry bully and the kid turns around and I sneak up on the kid and then the kid turns around and bosses me back. So, and the last thing you can do uh, or not do is to remember that one of the things that happens with kids, but it happen, can happen to all of us, is don't confuse your kids' anxiety uh, that they may be pushing back on you, but because they're anxious. They're not bad kids. They are actually really anxious. And not confuse a tantrum, necessarily, with, you know, that they don't want to do their this or they don't want to do with that. They may be very overwhelmed in that moment, and it may not be easy for them to do what you're asking. And so treating it as oppositional behavior, it can be a problem. That's a great point. And it would be beyond the time frame of this conversation this evening to delve into how you tell the difference more. But are you suggesting that children also may feel more worried or anxious as um, they feel the worry or anxious in their parents? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things to keep in mind is that if you're a if you're a parent and you run a little anxious, you want to be careful that you're not worrying aloud. You know, because if you're worrying aloud, meaning you're you know, you're just worrying and you know, you're talking about your worry and you have little ones, kiddos around, what you're doing is modeling something about the world which may not be helpful to your children. I think instead what you want to model is coping. You know, that's what you want to model. You want to reassure your kids and say, you know, this will pass. We've been through hard things before. Let's talk about how we can help you get through the next couple of days and work out a coping plan for kids. The last thing about kids, and this is true for all of us, and probably it's probably relevant when we get to sleep, is that you want to help your kids maintain their routines as much as possible. Um, those routines will ground your child, you know, um, in the same way that when, you know, toddlers wanted to, you know, when story time came, they, they often want to want the same story over and over again, because that same story is reassuring for them. And you try to introduce a different story. They don't want to do that. And so young kids in particular benefit from routine. And so to the degree possible, try to maintain the routine. But again, I'm going to say is that, you know, when you, when both adults are working from home and you have little ones that, that sounds, that's easier said than done, but try to strive for that. And the other thing is routine really is one of the ways that we influence our uh, uh, circadian clock and that will influence our, our sleep. And this is particularly true for teens. Um, because uh, now teens are are free to follow their clock, you know, many times, um, which is okay. It will give the teen and you a real good idea of what their true clock is, right? Um, but even then, you want them to try to maintain a, a, a standard lights out time and standard get out of bed time, whatever their clock determines in this particular time. Sure. 
No, thank you. And appreciate that. Um, back to a question that I'm presuming a mother had asked, which is, would you give a few thoughts about how you help young children before we get to adults, three to eight year olds, three to nine year olds in terms of sleep difficulties at this time? And I don't mean the routine ones, but I mean ones that have you know popped up since um, all of this has happened. If uh, what 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 you're going to want to some of the things you're going to strive for is you're going to try to to help your kid stay in bed is the first thing. Help your kid stay in bed. So um, it's much easier in the evening. So when you do story times, do story time in your kid's bed, not story time in the big bed. You know, when my kids were little, we would do story time in the big bed and we would have watermelon and story time. But at this particular time, if your kids are anxious, you want to do story time in their bed. And the reason is it's a lot easier for you to get out of their bed than it is for you to take your kid from your bed to their bed. Because the likelihood your kid's going to awaken during that transport is high. All right. The other things that you want to do is you want to kind of like teach them some strategies at bedtime to cope. You can set up a, a reward system. Um, one of the ones that I like the best is, is uh, that I call connect the dot, which is basically having a big reward, uh, getting a silhouette of that reward, putting it on graph paper and where every uh, where the, the drawing touches the graph paper, put a dot. And each dot represents a reinforcer. And so ideally, you know, when the kid connects all the dots, they get the big reward. But in between every third dot, they get a small reward. And so now you sit, you have a reward system to help them kind of like stay in bed. And so you could have them stay in bed or you could reward them for when you return them to bed, they come to you and you return them to bed, that they return to bed with grace and no pushback and they get rewarded for that. Um, and then basically emphasize, you know, coping strategies for them. Reassure sure. them, you know, do what, do what you're doing, you know, hug them um, and redirect them. And, uh, uh, and again, naming the, the worry bully can be helpful to externalize their worry for them. Michael, you know that dot to dot and little reward and big reward sounds actually kind of fun, like for adults yes. as well. So so can we segue then? Maybe we should be doing that with adults that are having a hard time sleeping right now. Uh, well, I, I think that if we go to sleep and if we go to sleep in general, yes. the way to think about sleep is that there are three drivers well first off the problem uh is that if you have struggled with insomnia this time is probably really hard if you kind of like semi-managed your insomnia over the years this time is going to be really hard for you there are three systems that feed into sleep one is the uh is the arousal system you know i think all of us can uh, agree that we have a lot of physical and mental arousal Physical and mental arousal keeps sleep away. Okay? The other process is the what's called the sleep drive system. This is our drive to sleep. This is our appetite for sleep. This is uh, so we all know what that's like. You know, when you're sitting up and you start to feel that sleep pressure, this pressure to sleep, that's sleep drive. 
The other is the biologic or the circadian clock, um, which is which works kind of like in a, t- a tandem with sleep drive. So what happens when we start to, to have sleep problems, um, we basically start to change our behavior to try to sleep more. When mm-hmm. we try to sleep more or, or produce more opportunity for sleep, what happens is that we drain sleep drive. Sleep drive is our friend. What we really want to do is to optimize sleep drive. So that's why we say no naps. No naps, no matter how tired you are. Because if you take a nap, that basically drains your sleep tank, which is your, your sleep drive tank. Right. We, we, we recommend staying to a lights out, get out of bedtime. And it doesn't really matter what those times are, so long as they're consistent. And that consistency helps with our clock, but also helps with our sleep drive. Don't stay in bed if you're not asleep, trying to produce more sleep. Uh, Because if you do nap or kind of like nap in uh, in that state, you're basically uh, uh, driving down your sleep drive. The other thing that really is influencing all of us right now is our clocks, uh, because our clocks are really influenced by routine. And a lot of us don't have the same routines that we did, you know, even a few months ago. And routine kind of like entrains, uh, routine entrains our circadian clock. It entrains our mood. It entrains a lot of things. So, for example, routine, like eating meals at the same time. Now you might find your, your meal time shifting around for whatever reason. Try not to do that. Try to go adhere to a standard dinner time, a standard breakfast time, a standard lunch time. If you're working from home, you that your lunch times might have gotten a little, you know, uh, wiggly. Get to a get back to a standard routine. That all feeds back into the clock. Try to maintain socialization. Socialization affects clock. Right. So when we when we're working with someone with chronic insomnia, we're really trying to. Uh, target those three systems. And then the arousal system is the things that some of the things we've talked about of like relaxation, meditation, things like that to dampen your arousal, thinking strategies to help your arousal. Um, But trying to make sure you don't stay in bed when you're not asleep. We have about five, six minutes left. Would you say one quick word, therefore, about screens in bed and sleep? Even if you can filter out blue wavelength light, blue wavelength light, the evidence is not strong about its contribution to arousal, right? But it's really about content. <clears throat> it's about content, right? So if uh, so, I would never read the news just before bed. You know, if I want to get my arousal system going, read the news just before bed. I'm not going to do that, right? The other thing is don't do any other activity other than the three S's, sleep, sick, and sex. That's it. Don't do any other activities because what happens when you do other activities that are arousal, this really interesting thing happens. Pavlovian classical conditioning, which means that when we're engaged in an activity that's arousing and we're in bed, our minds start to link bed with arousal. So now when we get into bed, boom, bing, our minds are turned on. 
So this is another reason, like, don't do anything other than those three S's in bed. And when you're not asleep, get up out of bed. Because if you stay in bed awake, what you're doing is conditioning your mind to be awake. And every mother knows how this works. Because if you're a mother and you were nursing, your mind probably awakened a few minutes before your baby cried if they were if you had a standard nursing time you were your mind was conditioned to awaken that's what happens when you stay in bed awake wonderful that's fascinating thank you so much for that so last question before we begin to fade out this evening's presentation is when should we worry and when might you recommend that people begin to seek professional guidance or counsel? It's a terrific question. There, there, there's a difference between anxiety and anxiety disorder. And all the disorder means is that it's like these four Ds. One is your anxious response is disproportionate to the objective threat or danger. So, so you are, you're not just anxious. You are super panicky anxious. All right. Most of your friends and colleagues probably aren't having panic attacks. If you're having panic attacks, you're having a disproportionate emotional response to the situation. The second D is distress. The anxiety itself is very distressing for you. You're losing sleep. You can't think about anything else. You're preoccupied. You're having trouble focusing on your work. Distressed. The third is D is disruptive, meaning that actually your anxiety and often it's avoidance, has disrupted your life. You know, you're not doing things that you used to do. Uh, you uh, are finding it hard to work. You're finding it hard to maintain your typical routines. And the fourth D is duration, which is that most, we all have anxious responses to, uh, to events, but typically our systems calm down within six months. If you um, uh, have are, are still really you have these other three D's in in play for longer than three months. It's probably an anxiety disorder. So the the goal of treatment is to actually remove the the four D's so that the disorder disappears, but the anxiety doesn't disappear because anxiety is normal. So when you uh, the other thing is if you have struggled with an anxiety disorder in the past, um, you probably are having a worsening of your symptoms. That would be the time to actually go back to your therapist, uh, work with an anxiety specialist um, to get some help. And it may be the time uh, to talk with your, your psychiatrist or your physician about medication, particularly if you're not sleeping well. Um, so, uh, but I really would recommend those who are thinking about help to think about working first with, you know, a therapist who's an experienced anxiety disorder specialist. Our gratitude for Michael Tompkins, a uh, superb psychologist and expert on anxiety disorders uh, in children, adolescents, and adults for sharing his expertise and flexibility with the unique format for this presentation today. Uh, Michael, would you say any last final one minute thoughts? I would say that uh, we will get through this and we will get through this together and we will learn some things that will help us be better prepared for this should it happen again. And I think what this is the time for us to reach out to each other, to be patient with each other, to uh, lean on each other 
um, while we wait for this to pass. Thank you for those just wonderful words and the feelings behind it. And we are ever so grateful. We are also grateful to our live listening audience, as well as those who will access this recording at another time. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 116th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.